Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. In the sermon last week, God confirmed his covenant with Abram again. The covenant was God's solemn oath to give Abram a huge number of descendants who would inherit the land. It had been 10 years since God first gave that promise to Abram. In the meantime, Sarai was still childless, and both Abram and Sarai were well beyond childbearing years. And yet, in Genesis 15, 6, it says, Abram believed God, and he counted it to him as righteousness. God had promised that Abram's descendants would be of his own flesh and blood, but God had not yet said that those descendants would be Sarai's flesh and blood. So Sarai came up with a plan to help God out. It was a plan common in their culture, one that Abram agreed to, that Abram would have children through Sarai's servant, Hagar. And sure enough, Hagar had a son, Abram's own flesh and blood, and they called him Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. But 13 years later, Abram found out, much to his shock, I'm sure, that Ishmael was not the child God had promised. But I'm getting ahead of the story. Before we start, let's pray. Lord, show us what this ancient true story from a much different culture has to do with us today. Use it to increase our faith in you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's read chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will increase your numbers. The phrase walk before me in the Bible usually expresses the idea of a servant's faithful devotion and service to his king. To walk with God is to follow his laws, regulations, and commands in faithful obedience. God is asking Abram, Abraham for a life of obedient devotion. Now, this is puzzling because God says, Walk before me faithfully, and I will make my covenant with you. But God had already made a covenant with Abraham to multiply his descendants greatly, who would inherit the land. In fact, in chapter 15, this covenant was unconditional and one-sided. In other words, God just says he would do it. But now he says, Walk before me faithfully, and I will make my covenant with you. Sounds like God has changed the covenant from unconditional, I will just do it, to conditional. If you obey me, then I will make my covenant with you. Now, we'll come back to this later. Meanwhile, verses 3 through 8 explain the covenant further. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. 
the whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Now, in Scripture, there is a principle which scholars call progressive revelation, which means that as time goes on in biblical history, God reveals more and more of his plan. And that's what's going on here. First, God reaffirms the covenant he made with Abram and explains more and more about it. For example, Abram will not only have many descendants, but he will be the father of many nations. This is new revelation. And second, verse 6 adds that kings will come from Abram. This is also new revelation. David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah are just some of the kings descended from Abraham. Third, in verses 7 and 8, God promises Abraham's God, God promises to be Abraham's God and the God of his descendants after him. So God is giving more details about the covenant he made with Abraham. But there's a problem that we need to deal with in this passage. The one I mentioned just a bit ago. How could the covenant be unconditional, as it seemed in chapter 15, but conditioned on obedience in chapter 17? After all, chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, seem to say, If you obey me, then I will make my covenant with you. Was the covenant conditional or not? Let's read verses 9 to 14, where the problem only seems to get worse. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So how can the covenant be unconditional if there are conditions? The answer is that the covenant was indeed unconditional, but it had stipulations, not conditions. Now, in case that sounds like double talk, let me give you an example. When I went into the Air Force, Uncle Sam made a covenant with me, so to speak. They promised to give me a career and provide free training and to provide my food, clothing, medical care, housing, and a salary. And all I had to do to join was to swear an oath of good faith and allegiance. I do solemnly swear to uphold the Constitution of the United States. That's it. But this covenant came with stipulations. I had to pass some classes. Not in order to get into the Air Force. I was already in. And if I didn't pass, they wouldn't kick me out. I would just have to retake the classes. I also had to pass the obstacle course and the firing range. Not to get into the Air Force. I was already in. And if I didn't pass, they wouldn't kick me out. I would just have to keep trying until I made it. And I had to wear a uniform. I didn't wear a uniform to get into the Air Force. 
I didn't even have a uniform before I got in the Air Force. The uniform was a sign that I was in the Air Force. It was also a sign of solidarity with everyone else in the Air Force. I didn't wear it to get in. I wore it as a sign that I was in. The same is true of circumcision and walking with God. Circumcision and walking with God were not conditions for getting into the covenant. They were a sign that you were already in the covenant. They were also a sign of solidarity with everyone else in the covenant. We know that because verse 11 specifically says that circumcision was a sign of the covenant. Beside that, a baby at eight days old couldn't do anything to earn the right to be in the covenant. But circumcision was a sign that that baby was already in the covenant. Now back to my Air Force illustration. If I did not have true faith and allegiance, for example, if I refused to go to classes, if I refused to obey orders, if I refused to wear the uniform, after some time in jail, they would cut me off and remove me from the Air Force. Just like those who refused to be circumcised or to circumcise their children would, according to verse 14, be cut off from the people of God for breaking the covenant. The covenant God made with Abraham was unconditional toward those who, like Abraham, had faith in God. The stipulations, like circumcision, were expressions of that faith. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant, just like a wedding ring is a sign of the marriage, not a condition for getting married. Now, I want you to also notice that it was not just physical Jews who could inherit this covenant. According to verses 12 and 13, it also included those in Abraham's household who were not his physical offspring. In other words, Gentiles. In Romans and Galatians, Paul will also insist that not just believing Jews can inherit the promises of Abraham, but believing Gentiles as well. Now, back in verse 5, God had changed Abram's name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. In verses 15 and 16, God now changes Sarai's name as well. Starting in verse 15, God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. So God says Sarah is going to have a son and would be the mother of nations and kings. But she's 90 years old and has been childless for her entire life. Not only that, but Abraham would be 100 years old by the time his next son was to be born. And that sounded crazy. So according to verses 17 and 18, Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abram said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Now, it had been hard enough for, Abram, for Abraham to believe that he would have a son through a servant girl at the age of 86. The idea that he, at 100 years old, and Sarah, who had been barren all of her life and was now 90 years old, would have a son, seemed absolutely laughable. 
The wish that Ishmael might live under your blessing was probably a bit like thinking a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. In other words, a son already in my house is better than two impossible promises. But in verse 19, God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Say what? For 13 years, Abraham had assumed that Ishmael was the son God had promised. The son who would produce many descendants and would inherit the covenant. All of Abraham's hopes and dreams had been on Ishmael, his only son. But now God says, no, Sarah will have a son. His name will be Isaac, which means he laughs. And it will be through him that I carry out the promises, God says. That must have been a huge shock for both Abraham and Ishmael. So God reassures Abraham that God has not abandoned Ishmael. In verse 20, God says, And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will increase greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. Now, these 12 rulers who come from Ishmael will be named later in chapter 25. The point, however, is that God will bless Ishmael too. But, God says in verse 21, My covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. So in verses 23 through 27, Abraham, Ishmael, and all of Abraham's male servants were circumcised as a sign of the covenant, and they will be blessed. In fact, all the nations or Gentiles of the world will be blessed through Abraham. But the means of that blessing will come through Isaac's descendants, not through Ishmael's. So what do we learn from this passage? I want to make four observations. First, I hope you're noticing that this idea of God's covenant with Abraham just keeps coming up over and over again in Genesis. It was first revealed in chapter 12, then reconfirmed in chapter 13, chapter 15, chapter 16, and now reconfirmed again in chapter 17. In fact, the word covenant occurs over a dozen times in this chapter, and even more information is given about it. This covenant idea that God will give Abraham many descendants who will inherit the land forever is one of the main themes of the whole book of Genesis. It will continue to come up over and over again throughout the book. Second, all the nations or Gentiles of the world will be blessed through Abraham, but the means of that blessing will come through Isaac's descendants, not through Ishmael's. Muslims dispute this. They believe that Muhammad, who lived in the 600s AD, was a direct descendant of Ishmael, and that God's promise to Abraham would be passed down through Ishmael, not Isaac. They think Christians and Jews changed Genesis. Now, this was easy for modern Muslims to believe, because the most ancient copy of the Old Testament in existence wasn't copied until 1000 AD. But then, in 1948 the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And guess what? They contained a copy of Genesis, copied down about 200 BC, 
800 years before Muhammad was even born. That brought us 1,200 years closer to Moses' time. So in the Dead Sea Scrolls copy of Genesis, did the promise go through Isaac or through Ishmael? Had Christians and Jews changed the text between 200 B.C. and 1000 A.D.? As it turns out, the Dead Sea copy of Genesis, the promise went through Isaac, not Ishmael. The text of Genesis had not been changed in all those years. Third, this chapter tells us something about grace. God's covenant to Abraham was by grace through faith. But there were stipulations. Abram was expected to walk with God and be circumcised as a sign of the covenant. We are also saved by grace through faith. But like Abraham, we are expected to demonstrate that faith by works or obedience. John the Baptist said we are to produce, work or produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. James says, faith without works is dead. And Paul speaks of the obedience that comes from faith. Martin Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. Genuine faith produces works. Genuine faith produces obedience. Not perfect obedience, of course. Our faith may often falter, sometimes seriously, like Abraham's did but genuine faith produces fruit. Genuine faith produces fruit because genuine faith is not just about intellectually believing certain doctrines. Genuine faith involves a change of heart, of repentance of sin, and loving devotion and allegiance to our King Jesus Christ. And if you have a Holy Spirit-produced change of heart, a circumcision of the heart, as the prophets called it, that cannot help but produce a change in your life. Finally, in Genesis 17, physical circumcision is given as a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham. In Colossians 2, 11 and 12, Paul compares circumcision to baptism. I'm going to quote this from the New Living Translation because I think it's more clear than the NIV. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. So Paul compares circumcision to baptism. Our friends in mainline denominations like the Lutherans, Presbyterians, Methodists, and Catholics would say that just as children were circumcised, so also should children be baptized. Baptists would say that misses the point of the comparison. Paul specifically tells us what the point of the comparison was, and it was not the age. It was a symbol of renouncing your sinful nature. While the age of baptism is the subject of legitimate scholarly dispute, what should not be a subject of dispute is the importance of baptism. In the case of circumcision, if an adult in Abraham's household refused to be circumcised, they would be cut off from the covenant. 
If someone has never been baptized, not even as a child, and refuses to be baptized, I don't think that cuts you off from salvation, but it may very well be an indication that your faith is not genuine. If you profess faith in Christ, but have never been baptized, you need to get baptized. Baptism doesn't save anyone, but it is the initial public sign of your allegiance or faith toward Jesus Christ. It is the sign that you are truly saved and that you are on his side. It's the sign that you are serious about your faith. If this is not making much sense to you, read the back of your bulletin. The first paragraph is about faith. The second paragraph is about stipulations. They are not things we do to get saved. They are the signs or expressions that our faith is genuine. If what is written on the back of your bulletin expresses the sincere attitude of your heart and you've never been baptized, we need to talk. Let's pray. Lord, if there is anyone here who knows you as their Lord and Savior, but has never been baptized, we pray that you would convict them of their need to follow you in obedience. And if there is anyone here who does not know you as Lord and Savior, we pray that you would convict them of their sin and their need to commit their hearts and lives to you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.